Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism, a podcast dedicated to exploring how we can live an inspired, energized, and wakeful life while dealing with the unique stressors of this very strange and very potent time. I am your host, Brett Kane. I'm a licensed massage therapist and mindfulness meditation instructor, and I have an amazing episode for you today. Because joining us on the show is the one and only Dr. Anna Lemke, who you may be familiar with if you've been plugged into this channel for a while as we did a book exploration for her newly released Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, which is one of the best books that I've read on the nature of addiction. And she has a unique expertise in it because she is actually the medical director of Stanford Addiction Medicine. She's the program director for the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship and the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She's actually won numerous awards for outstanding research in mental illness, for excellence in teaching, and for clinical innovation in treatment. And on top of that, she's released over 100 peer-reviewed papers, book chapters, and commentaries in prestigious outlets such as the New England Journal of Medicine. She has a very active speaking calendar, which has brought her onto some of the biggest shows on the internet, including the Joe Rogan Experience and the Huberman Labs podcast. So to say that this was an honor for me is kind of an understatement. Uh, I really got a lot from her book and encourage everybody who is listening to this to go buy Dopamine Nation uh, wherever you get your books. It is such an integral read for what we are moving through in this society with everything being, as she calls, drugified from our social media to our food to uh, pretty much every form of entertainment. It's so integral to the aim of this show to cultivate that sense of wakefulness and energy and inspiration to understand how many invisible forces are pulling on our attention and our physiologies and the dopamine system and the way that it operates I think is one of the most core fundamental things that we should be learning about. So this was a huge uh, thing for me to be able to have this conversation with her. You know, we go into how dopamine works in the body and how it affects the rest of our organism. We go into how addictions manifest from the more moderate symptoms to the more severe cases. We talk about what you can do when you do find yourself addicted to a substance or a behavior or a person or a thing. Uh, and ultimately, what is on the other side of addiction? What's waiting for us when we actually find how to regulate our dopamine systems in a way that is optimal? So I don't want to take up any more time. I want to get right into the episode. But before that, I just want to say if you are enjoying the show, if you want to support us, head on over to Apple Podcasts, hit that five-star review. It really is the gold of podcasts. You can subscribe over on YouTube to stay up to date with all the episodes. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. Uh, you can do our Patreon at patreon.com slash 21stCenturyVitalism. Uh, whatever you want to do to engage and just let me know you're out there. I'm reaching out. You can reach back. Say hello. I'd love it. Uh, if you want to support Dr. Lemke, you can purchase Dopamine Nation. The link to that will be down in the description. So please kick back, drink some tea, and open your hearts for the one and only Dr. Anna Lemke. Okay, 
Dr. Lemke, we are now live. So thank you and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking and thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, it's uh, an honor to have you on, uh, someone with such uh, accolades as yourself. I actually read your newest book, which I have right here, Dopamine Nation, uh, earlier this year, and I immediately, I mean, I kind of devoured it and uh, immediately resonated with it as something that I think most people would really benefit from in this really hyper-stimulating uh, world that we live in today. So I really wanted to have a conversation with you, I mean, about the science dopamine and maybe some of the perils and pitfalls associated with not understanding it. So I feel like a lot of people have a vague kind of fuzzy understanding of what dopamine exactly is. Um, I mean, I feel like we all kind of like, it's like the pleasure chemical, right? Or it's the, the <laughs> reward chemical, but like it doesn't go much further. So to start off, uh, what exactly are we talking about when we say dopamine? So dopamine is a neurotransmitter that we make in the brain. A neurotransmitter is a molecule or a chemical that bridges the gap between neurons. So neurons don't touch end to end. There's a little space between them that's called the synapse. And that synapse is bridged by neurotransmitters like dopamine. Other neurotransmitters are things like serotonin, norepinephrine, and those neurotransmitters allow for finer tuned control of the electrical circuits that make up who we are. Mm. Dopamine is um, probably the most important neurotransmitter when it comes to the experience of pleasure, motivation, and reward. It's not the only neurotransmitter or chemical in the brain involved in that process but it is the final common pathway for all reinforcing drugs and behaviors. And it's essentially become a kind of common currency for neuroscientists to measure how reinforcing or rewarding something is in the brain. So for example, uh, in rodents, chocolate will increase dopamine firing in the reward circuitry about 50 units or 50% above baseline. Um, sex is about 100% above baseline. Nicotine is 150% above baseline. So in other words, measuring the increase in dopamine firing in response to a substance or a behavior is one of the ways to measure the addictive or reinforcing potential of that substance. I would also add that we are always releasing dopamine at a kind of constant a baseline level. And so what becomes very salient or important to the brain is changes from that baseline level in dopamine firing, either above baseline or below baseline. I don't know if it was dopamine that I heard this about, but it was associated more with the anticipation of a reward than the actual reward stimulus itself. Is that, is that dopamine? So there are experiments that suggest that dopamine is even more important to the motivation to go get the reward than it is to the experience of pleasure itself. But in fact, it's important to both of those experiences. It's not one or the other. Um, a very famous experiment showed that if you reverse engineer a rat to have no dopamine receptors in the reward circuit in the brain, and you give that rat food by placing it right in the rat's mouth. The rat will eat the food and appear to get gustatory pleasure from the food. 
But if you put the food some distance away, such that the rat has to get up and go get the food, then very often those rats will not eat and may even starve to death. The idea being that dopamine is fundamental to this, you know, the, the sort of um, work uh, that the organism is willing and able to do uh, in response to uh, wanting to get a reward and that without dopamine, we're just not motivated to do the work and that dopamine is really important to motivating us to, to do the work. And it, it does that in a number of different ways by changing dopamine firing levels in response to different stimuli in our environment, but also in response to what's happening in our brain and how much dopamine our brain has just seen in the moment or hour or days before. Mm. So I, I know a lot of people associate dopamine primarily with substance use and uh, other behaviors like sex or like watching pornography. Are there other things that people might not recognize as being uh, dopa, dopa, I don't know how to say that word. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, dopaminergic. Yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah, so I mean, all, all reinforcing substances and behaviors um, have the potential to release dopamine. Uh, and that's how our brains get us to repeat that behavior, which is fundamental for our survival, or at least that's how we evolved. Um, so, for example, learning typically releases dopamine. Um, meditation and prayer have been shown to release dopamine. Um, so there, there are lots of activities beyond drugs uh, that release dopamine. But what's salient about things that are addictive is that they tend to release a whole lot of dopamine all at once with minimal effort. Um, and that's kind of the, the hallmark or the signature of things that tend to be addictive. Mm. Um, but, but dopamine in and, of, in and of itself is not, it's not, it's not that we're getting addicted to dopamine per se. Dopamine is a signal that allows us to interpret both internal and external cues. Hmm. Yeah, that kind of leads me to something I've been thinking a lot about since I've read your book. Um, and that's the intersection with technology. Uh, you, you mentioned in there the way that it functions as a pleasure and pain, kind of like the teeter totter that you, you talk about. Um, and I was just kind of wondering if it's possible for us to find many different ways to kind of press on that pleasure button uh, in from different sources of stimuli. And does that kind of, can that turn into like one centralized kind of like addictive pathway, if that makes sense? Yeah. So all reinforcing drugs and behaviors ultimately release dopamine in the specific circuit of the brain called the reward pathway, um, which is why, for example, there's this phenomenon of cross addiction where you can get addicted to one substance and then you give that up uh, and then you can get very or more easily addicted to another substance or another behavior once you've primed the reward pathway uh, for um, large you know, boluses of dopamine. Um, the the world that we live in now is one in which essentially all human behavior has become drugified in, in one way or another. Um, drugs, traditional drugs like alcohol and nicotine and cannabis are not only uh, more ubiquitous and cheaper and more accessible, but they're also generally more potent. And we also have drugs that didn't exist before, things like video games, online pornography, social media, 
online shopping, um, drew, dr- food has become largely drugified with the addition of salt, fat, and sugar. Quantity and frequency are very important and access when it comes to the addictive potential of a drug. So if you have a drug which is incredibly bountiful and easy to get, um, you're more likely to try it and you're more likely to get addicted to it. And when you think about something like TikTok, which is literally infinite, um, and uh, you know we have 24-7 access through our smartphones, and it's a highly potent reinforcer, now you're talking about a digital drug that's very, very addictive. Um, this, you know, the very short video sequence is just like absolute catnip for our brains. It releases dopamine. It's a, a very fast high. That means then the come down or the dopamine deficit state that typically follows a huge surge in dopamine leaves us craving more. And in that moment of craving, since at the swipe of a finger or even without a swipe, right, it almost it takes a swipe to stop the flow of the drug. Even just by sitting there, we are another video is pushed our way. Um, it's just very, very easy then to get caught in that that vortex of addiction. So does that that that's conditioning us to kind of I mean we're we're getting addicted to these services in a way and like what does that necessarily do to our physiology? So I feel like most people in my generation we're hooked. I'm kind of hooked, not on TikTok, but like Instagram. And, you know, I notice uh, my attention span in the past couple of years seems like it's kind of not narrow. It's just really broad and fuzzy now. And I'm just right, kind of right. curious what that looks like when you have this kind of like lighter addiction. Like I feel like we all kind of know what like a heavy, like your life is ruined by this addiction, but I feel like we're all chronically kind of addicted. Like what does that look like physiologically? Well, one of the important findings in neuroscience in the past 75 years is that pleasure and pain are co-located. So the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain, and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So if you imagine a teeter-totter in a kid's playground. And what's happening physiologically is that the most important rule governing this balance is that it wants to remain level, or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. So that means with any deviation to pleasure or pain, our brains are going to work very hard to bring the balance back to the level position. And the way that our brains do that is first by tipping an equal and opposite amount to whatever the stimulus was. So in the world today, we're surrounded by so many highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors that release dopamine and tip our uh, balance to the side of pleasure that We all, of necessity, are paying a physiologic price for that, and that's the stress of having to restore homeostasis and a level balance, which happens by first tipping to the opposite side or the side of pain. So that's the come down, the hangover, or just that moment of wanting to watch one more video. I often imagine that as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance, but they like it there so they don't get off. When the balance is level, they stay on until it's tilted and equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And then they get off and and balance is restored. But the second rule of this homeostatic self-regulating mechanism is that with repeated exposures to highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, tolerance develops, which means that initial response to pleasure gets weaker and shorter, but the after response to pain gets stronger and longer. In other words, those gremlins start to accumulate on the pain side of the balance pretty soon. We have enough gremlins on the pain side to fill out this whole room, and now they're camped out there. And what that essentially means is that we've changed our physiologic set point 
or our threshold for experiencing pleasure and pain, such that now we need even more potent pleasures to have any pleasure at all, and the merest insult or injury causes excruciating pain. Mm. And I think that's the state that we're facing now as individuals and as nations, especially wealthy nations, where we're so surrounded by abundance of pleasure and we're so insulated from pain that we have, in fact, recalibrated our uh, internal uh, pleasure-pain balance uh, such that uh, we don't experience much pleasure at all. We need to keep using not to get high, but just to feel normal. And when we're not using, we're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, distractedness, and craving for our drug. Um, so I do think it's a very insidious process that helps explain why, for example, people, in, according to world happiness surveys, are less happy now than they were 20 years ago, why rates of addiction, uh, depression, anxiety, suicide have gone up. Um, I think what, what's happening is that overabundance is actually an acute physiologic stressor, that our brains have evolved over millions of years for a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, not for the world that we live in now. So what do we do in this hyper-stimulating environment where everything is at our fingertips? And for a lot of people, this is the first time they've ever heard this kind of information, and they've already been inundated so much by this society. Like, what is, like, the first step into, A, realizing whether or not your balance is kind of tilted towards the pain side, and what can they do to kind of create some space from this? Because it seems kind of overwhelming. Well, um, I'm pretty hopeful that we're going to be able to navigate this, but I do think that um, both individually and collectively, it's a major challenge. And the first step is a dopamine fast, and that is abstaining from our drug or our drugs of choice, including the consumption of digital content for long enough for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off of the pain side of the balance and for homeostasis to be restored. So that's really the first step. Um, to reset our dopamine reward threshold back to a healthier baseline level where we can, again, take pleasure in simple, more modest rewards, um, and we can tolerate um, more pain because we no longer are in this dopamine, chronic dopamine deficit state. The other, the other piece that I recommend is to intentionally do things that are hard or to invite challenge and even physical pain of the right variety into our lives because those gremlins are agnostic to whatever the initial stimulus is. So if we start out by pressing on the pleasure side, the gremlins will counter that by jumping on the pain side and we'll reset our balance to the side of pain. But if we actually on purpose do things that are hard like exercise or ice cold water bath or other challenging experiences, whether physical, cognitive, or emotional, then those neuroadaptation gremlins will hop on the pleasure side of the balance and we'll start to upregulate our own feel-good hormones and neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, our endogenous opioid system, our endogenous cannabinoid system. And this is really countercultural because for the past 50 to 100 years, we've essentially been told that pain in any form is dangerous, that it will set up a psychic scar, leaving us vulnerable to post-traumatic stress disorder. But in fact, pain is the very source of our resilience as long as it's not too extreme. Of course, too much pain or too much of a toxic or noxious stimuli 
will harm or kill any living organism. But there's lots of science showing that mild to moderate doses of uh, noxious stimuli is good for living organisms because, again, uh, the body senses an injury in a modest amount and then begins to upregulate its own healing uh, capacity. Yeah, it seems really hard for me to like think about a lot of people in my life who have such strong social conditioning towards certain behaviors that are deemed either like sexy or like exciting or like cool. Uh, something I know with my generation a lot, and I'm sure, you know, back in the day it was probably similar, but like I know cannabis usage, for instance, is now so societally accepted and there's this whole culture that's sprung up around it like 420 every day and uh it's like kind of patted on the back and they just that that social reinforcement aspect of it that i could see makes it kind of like a courageous thing to do what you're saying and to really like step away and like i'm actually gonna try and be sober you know there's just so many forces trying to push us in the other direction it's like social it's environmental it's just so many things at this current day and age. It's kind of a lonely path, I agree. right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, well, it doesn't have to be lonely. I mean, I, I, I think there can be a groundswell of people trying this together so you don't have to do it alone. And I think it's also important to acknowledge it's, it's, it's as, you, as you mentioned, sort of social and sociocultural, but it's also biologically really hard. Because as soon as you stop using your drug of choice, well, those gremlins, they don't hop off right away. So your balance slams to the side of pain. You experience anxiety, again, irritability, insomnia, distractibility. And it feels like, oh, my gosh, I can't live like this, right? This is just too hard. But what I always say to patients is if you just can wait it out, eventually your brain will reset homeostasis and that constant pain and craving, which is really related to withdrawal from the drug, not your need for the drug itself, will get better and go away. And that's super important because a lot of times people start using things like cannabis to self, self-medicate their anxiety and their depression. But what they can't see is that over time through this process of neuroadaptation, that the cannabis or other drugs can itself become the cause or source of anxiety, depression, and other negative emotional states. Um, and it's only when you abstain for long enough, which is typically minimum of about a month to reset reward pathways, that we can then look back and see true cause and effect and say, oh, wow, I thought the cannabis was helping to put me to sleep. But in fact, uh, after abstaining, I can see that it was making me feel worse. Again, initially it works. But over time, as the brain adapts to the presence of that drug, um, it can actually rebound on us and not only stop working, but start doing the opposite of why we started the drug in the first place. And this is something that you really can't know for sure until you do the experiment you know, and stop using for long enough, which again is usually minimum of a month, to see what your brain looks like off of that drug. And that's true for digital drugs too, whether it's you know TikTok or YouTube or <clears throat> League of Legends or Snapchat, Instagram, whatever. Yeah. So is it possible that once you have taken that 30 days and you've had some space from it, you start to reset your chemical balance, can you reintegrate it in a healthy way? Or is it like once you've like kind of abused it for so long, do you just have to like stay clear of it? Or can we have these things in our lives in a way that is healthy? Yeah, it's a great question. 
Um, it, it depends on many different factors. It depends on the person. It depends on how addicted they were to that substance or behavior. It depends on how much work they're willing to put into moderating. So moderation is possible in the wake of addiction, but it's a lot of work. Um, so there's a famous saying, you know, when it comes to alcohol addiction, that um, one is too many and two is never enough. The, the idea being that one drink is a gateway to way too many drinks. But if you were to actually stop at two drinks, it would not get you to where you mentally want to go and the reason that you're drinking in the first place. So that makes moderation very, very difficult for people who have been addicted. But I work with lots of people who meet criteria for addiction to all kinds of substances and behaviors whose goal is moderation and who are willing to invest the time and energy into that. Moderation always starts with a period of abstinence, so you can't skip that part. You have to have that four weeks minimum of not using, again, in order to reset homeostasis to give you a fighting chance of being able to return to using your drug and use it in, in moderation. So if you're able to do that, you know, and you feel better and you reset reward pathways, then the key to moderating is to come up with a very specific plan and a way to remain accountable to that plan. Mm -hmm. And by that I mean thinking really granularly about when, how, how much, who with, in what circumstances, all of it uh, that you're gonna use. So for example, I work with a number of young patients with video game addiction, and their moderation plan might be look like, I'm only gonna play on the weekends, I'm only gonna play with my friends, not with strangers, I'm gonna limit it to four hours a day, um, I'm not going to play this game that I know once I start, I can't stop, but I'll let myself play these other games. So things things like that. I'm going to turn off alerts. I'm not going to play any games on my phone. Um, you know, I'm going to leave it leave the games for just my PlayStation or whatever it is. These are the kinds of self-binding strategies that we have to put in place because once we're in the throes of desire, there's really no more deciding, right? Once we're we're sort of at the edge of the cliff, we're, we're going to jump. So the key is to not not go to the edge. Yeah, it kind of feels like like putting bumpers up so that you don't let yeah. impulsivity like make that right. choice for you. Right, exactly. So you, and also so you don't rely on willpower alone, which you know isn't is not an infinite resource as we know it run, runs out over the course of a single day. Yeah. So what about the people who they might be hearing this and they're like, well, that sounds like kind of boring. Like the idea, like they might be on like the fence of like, I think I have a drinking problem, but I have a lot of fun when I'm drinking mm. or um, any other kind of problematic behavior. Like the idea of like boredom being the thing that keeps them from abstaining. Um, like what would you say to like that element of it? If they, they're just like not really wanting to. Well, I would first validate that um, for, for many people, modern life truly is boring. Um, you know, we have most of, most of our basic survival needs met. Most of the things that we do are kind of things that we have to generate. Um, they're not things that we have to do in order to live. There's sort of ways that we fill time um, in the modern world where we've got machines doing uh, much of the work that people used to do and more leisure time than ever before. Uh, we're living longer than ever before, so we've got more actual uh, days. Um, so, so that's a real problem, you know, boredom. And boredom is a very common reason that people say they use in an addictive way. But my challenge to that would simply be 
that ultimately, um, you know, life is not made better by addictive use of any substance or behavior. And, and what you're doing is you're trying to alleviate one problem, the problem of boredom, and in the process, adding a lot of a lot of problems, and ultimately not alleviating boredom. Because what happens is, as people move further along in their consumptive road, even drug use is boring. Like it, it, it stops working, right? It's not. It doesn't. It's not able to maintain what it did before because of this process of neuroadaptation. And now, plus, you potentially got a lot of other serious problems: relationship problems, school problems work problems, health problems. Um, and the only way to really you know, test that again is to do this dopamine fast and stop for long enough. Because the other thing that happens is we are not really good at seeing true cause and effect when we're chasing dopamine. The world is sensory rich and causal poor. And by that I mean that there's enormous ambiguity in the environment and it's very hard for us to, actual see, to actually see the long-term outcomes of behavior in the moment. And one of the ways we have to really assess or experiment with that is to do a sustained behavior uh, that's contrary to the behavior that we're doing and doing it for long enough to really be able to see what the consequences are. We can't do a one-day test and say, oh, no, I feel like crap. I got to go back to using. Well, yeah, you're going to feel like crap when you first stop because you're in withdrawal, and that's going to last a couple weeks. Yeah. Is it possible for like an a transitionary phase like in terms of like like you want to do this fast but maybe like starting to wean off or do you think just cutting it clear and going cold turkey because I know some people who have kind of made their addiction of choice um, kind of more like a reward they're like well I'm gonna like kind of slingshot myself into better behavior by putting this off but still doing it and then once I build new behaviors and hopefully it'll fall away is that something that you've seen work well, there's no, you know, there's no one right way to do this. Um, and I think any kind of positive behavior change in a positive direction is always good. I will also add as a footnote that there are some people who use some drugs where they absolutely should not stop cold turkey because they might go into life-threatening withdrawal, uh, particularly with benzodiazepines like Xanax if they become physiologically dependent or alcohol if they become physiologically dependent dependent or opioids. Um, with those kinds of drugs, you, you know, better to do a medically monitored taper. But in general, my clinical experience and the data suggests that outside of those life-threatening situations, setting a specific quit date and quitting on that date is more advantageous than trying to slowly go down. And that's true whether you're talking about cigarettes or whether you're talking about pornography. Um, that the quit date <clears throat> is something that you kind of wrap your head around, knowing that you'll go into withdrawal, and that you got to go the full month or so in order to reap the rewards and reset reward pathways, which also allows you then to take pleasure in more modest rewards. What happens is if you just gradually try to cut back, number one, it turns out it's harder and people are less successful because once they start, they're liable to go back to whatever they're uh, regular consumption was or increase it. Um, but also the gradual decrease never resets reward pathways mm -hmm. in the way that's noticeable so that people can begin to take pleasure in other um, natural or more modest rewards. What are these more modest rewards that you're speaking of, if not these like high dopamine inducing things, which I think 
I feel like a lot of our society sets up as like the golden grail. You know, it's like we're yeah. like suffer for so long so you can go on vacation, you can eat at the buffet, you can drink all you want, this huge luxurious thing. What is what's what's a modest reward as opposed to that? Well, if you think of, you know, how we were designed over millions of years of evolution, we were designed for a world of scarcity and ever-present danger and the kinds of things that our dopamine <clears throat> wiring is adapted for is um, rewards related to subsistence food for survival, clothing, shelter, and finding a mate. Um, so, you know, broadly speaking, these are the kinds of natural rewards. But when I think about what that translates to in modern life, what I mean is that we are in a place where we are not constantly thinking about being somewhere else or needing to be someone else or what else we should be doing or could be doing. We're able to really be fully present in the lives that we were given and to go through whatever tasks uh, we have set for ourselves and that are consistent with our values with a sense of meaning and purpose and um, kind of you know some degree of serenity uh, regarding uh, those behaviors and I think that's something that we can we probably all do aspire to it, it kind of sounds like you're advocating for a sense of like mindfulness well I don't usually like to use that word because it's kind of overused and it's it's sort of a practice um, of observing thoughts and behaviors without reacting. And it's a very important and useful skill, which of course I advocate and teach and practice myself. But that's not really, mindfulness is not the end goal, right? The end goal is a, a kind of feeling that you're comfortable in your body, feeling that you're comfortable in your life, um, you know, being able to wake up each day and have some sense of meaning and purpose and wanting to get out of bed and taking some pleasure in very modest rewards like having a simple meal, going on a simple walk, watching a sunset, meeting with friends, that you're not constantly needing to up the ante in order to feel anything at all. And more and more I see, you know, in this day and age where people are quite numb, it's where they really feel, they don't, they don't really feel anything or they feel very disconnected to the world. Um, disconnected to their bodies, disconnected to other people, you know, disconnected with any kind of spiritual pathway or meaning or purpose. So it's trying to find a way to recapture these things. Mm. So uh, a little bit about me is that uh, I'm actually a practicing Buddhist as well. Oh, great. Um, and my primary teacher is Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, and he talks a lot about this idea of ordinary magic and it, right. it sounds really similar to what you're talking about. And it's very much like the kitchen sink level of existence and learning how to just be with every one of those things. And one right. of the gateways to get to that he talks about is learning how to be okay with being bored. And yes, he even right. like details these different levels of boredom from like hot boredom to cool boredom and like mm. learning how to allow yourself to be into that state and how that expands your ability to really just feel at peace in yeah. all of these moments, which it just sounds eerily familiar from my standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I, what I find so, so interesting is whether you read in Buddhism, in the, you know, Buddhism literature, or whether you read about Christian centering prayer or the Kabbalah or, you know, Muslim texts, Basically, they're all converging on very many of these same ultimate themes. We, we all 
kind of innately know what we're striving for and when we get there um, it's very ultimately difficult to put into words but it's it's clear that we're all seeing the same intangible um, object I think one of the key keys for me in sort of trying to understand uh, sort of Buddhist recommendations or practices is that I, I was originally under the mistaken impression that this idea of being fully present in the moment, a la, you know, some kind of Zen Buddhist practice, meant that you were like levitating and you, you know, that meant that you, you were, that if you got that right, then you would feel good. And it took me a long time to realize that, no, what that re- means is that tolerating the distress and the unpleasantness of being alive is, is the Buddhist practice. And I think that's what your teacher is getting at, that, that this the experience of boredom is very unpleasant and even potentially really scary because when you're bored, you're asking yourself, well, why do I do anything that I do? I mean, why? Which then translates to why am I here and what is my purpose? And it can open up a whole Pandora's box of, you know, troubling questions. Um, that part of being human and being alive is having to sit with and tolerate uh, but the idea is to not run away from those and to recognize uh, the distress of, you know, those unanswerable questions. Yeah, yeah. He had a word or a phrase called the basic bewilderment. Uh-huh, and yeah, that's, that's like good. A, a space that you touch, like through meditation, when you start to start asking those questions and you really contact the mystery <laughs> of the unknowable nature of reality. And what the first thing is, is like a sense of panic. And from that philosophy standpoint, that's how we construct our entire personality structure is to defend from that moment of like, (gasps) like, what is all this? And then everything comes from that. And it's, I mean, that's the first noble truth of like everything or like life has suffering. It's making contact with that. Right. And I think it's important to recognize, too, that it's a dynamic state. So it's not like you reach some level of Buddhahood and then you're good to go. It's like in any given day or any given hour or minute, you can fluctuate between these states of panic and serenity. Um, And that's just that is the nature of being alive, that constant flux, that change, even in terms of of our own internal state. But, you know, the key is getting comfortable with that and not trying to run away from it. Yeah, and I feel like what I notice uh, a pattern of behavior, and you kind of mentioned it, is that constant ramping up or that constant journey of becoming kind of keeps you from being. You know, everybody has like really lofty ideas of what they want for themselves. And I've seen within myself even this ability to just not be here with what's happening today because I'm so focused on building up to whatever the next stage is. And I find that to be like a really elaborate defense structure as yeah, well. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this can, this can happen too as people walk certain spiritual pathways, right? Whether it's Christianity or Buddhism or what have you. This idea that they are, you know, having to strive for the new level. And of course, goals are, I mean, we are goal-oriented creatures and having goals and achieving those goals feels really good. But there can be a, a way in which we can undermine our capacity to really achieve what we're trying to achieve by like also these sort of spiritual goals like when i reach when i attain this sort of you know level of spiritual awareness then such and such will happen it's like nope (laughs) yeah 
yeah, I really like the idea um, that enlightenment is ego's final disappointment. Right, exactly. One of those things. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, um, I do want to give you enough time before your next appointment. So I just want to say thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Again, I think it's just so important that folks really begin to grapple with this idea of the dopamine system. Uh, I think in today's day and age, it's almost like one of the fundamental things we should learn. So thank you so much for doing the work that you do. It really is um, a treat to have you on and to have dived into your book and your other interviews. Um, where can people find you and how can they interact and maybe learn a little bit more about this? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on your show and for your gentle and calm demeanor. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And um, I'm not on social media or generally, you know, reachable, but I would say reading my books is a good way to familiarize uh, yourself with my, my ideas. Wonderful. Awesome. And that is Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. I'm sure it's probably everywhere you can find books. So, Generally speaking, awesome. yes. Awesome. Well, Dr. Lemke, thank you so much again. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you. You too. All right, my friends, that was the episode. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, the top of my stomach. Thank you so much for listening all the way through till the end. Uh, that was Dr. Anna Lemke. If you want to support her and learn more, she has a ton of online conversations with some of the greats. Uh, like I said, she was on Joe Rogan for like two and a half hours. She was on the Huberman Labs podcast. They go way, way, way more in depth because they have so much more time. And she has an amazing book that is really easy to read and very informative and funny and also just it just hits in all the right ways she really knew what she was doing with that one so head on over to amazon or i suggest like thrift books or i, I don't know goodreads um if you cannot support amazon that'd be great you know jeff bezos don't need your your money he's got enough so but yeah that was the episode thank you so much for listening i appreciate you and we will catch you next time on 21st Century Vitalism.